Hey, this is John Fanta from Fox College Hoops and Big East Shootaround. You're listening to the best podcast on the Seton Hall Pirates, Left Coast Pirates. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning, Tommy. Doing well. Another day, sunny San Diego, hanging out in the man cave. You know, Mike, we've taken a few weeks off. Scheduling works out like that sometimes, but I'm excited. We've got one of my guilty pleasures coming in today. We've got Jamar Nutter joining us today. Tommy, Tommy, taking a couple weeks off? What's what's the expectation? We got to have a pirate grade on every week now? Where are you trying to set the bar here for Love Coast Pirates? We try to set that bar as high as we can. But, you know, it's it's exciting. You know, as we go back and we have these guys on, you know, it kind of brings back memories. But all I can remember about Jamar was he was one of my favorites. And then we dove into his numbers, and it kind of came out why he was one of my favorites. It just it depends on your perspective of Jamar. I think a lot of people remember Jamar as a role player, but he wasn't a role player. He was like the number two, number three scorer, uh, integral part of the rotation in most of the years that he was on that roster. He was part of an NCAA tournament team in the 06 season. He was part of the Bobby Gonzalez rebuild. But, you know, he, he was a big part of each one of those teams. He just might not have been the biggest name. And so, that, once again, we talk about all these reasons why a guy might be under the radar or why their name might not be remembered in Seton Hall lore for certain reasons. And I, I'll keep on repeating this again for Jamar. It's just not fair. You had Donald Copeland and Kelly Whitney. You had Jeremy Hazell breaking on the scene as a freshman. You know, but there's Jamar scoring over 1,000 points in his career. He's top 40 all-time. He's top 10 in all-time three-point shots made. He's got a pretty storied career when you start diving into it. We, we did the notes for this podcast, and we're going through some specific games, and he's at the forefront for a lot of the biggest shots that put the team over the top in some crucial wins during those seasons. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk to Jamar, get his perspective, and dive into some of those stories that have probably been forgotten over the years. And, and, and that's why we do this, right, to kind of – bring it all back, relive the history, and have some fun with it. And big thanks to a friend of the podcast, Pete Fabiano, for introducing us to Jamar. Really excited. And here we go. Hailing from Newark, New Jersey, he spent his high school days playing at Seton Hall Prep in West Orange, eventually being inducted to the school's Athletic Hall of Fame in 2015. Played for the Pirates from 2004 to 2008 under coaches Louis Orr and Bobby Gonzalez. Played professionally in countries like Denmark, Germany, and Morocco. 
please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Jamar Nutter. Jamar, how are you today? I'm doing good, guys. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks again for joining the show. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. It's our pleasure. So a couple topics, Jamar, before we get started talking about your life and basketball. How is everyone in your immediate circle doing relative to the coronavirus and the pandemic that we've been challenged with? Appreciate you for asking. Everyone is good. Unfortunately, uh, everyone is healthy and, and blessed. My mom and my brother ended up having it, but they're fighters and they fought through it and they're doing really well now. I'm glad to hear. I mean, it's probably a trying time for anybody who's got to face this issue head on. But we're also facing other issues head on as a society right now. I mean, the big issue out there in this world is the social injustice that's taking place. And a lot of current and former athletes have been very outspoken in supporting this cause. What's your opinion on what needs to be done in this country? There's a lot going on nowadays. And, you know, we just got to, I mean, unfortunately, we just got to pray, hope things get better. Fortunately to say, but, you know, a, a new president is always good, a new change. Kind of kind of sided on what kind of president we need because I think we need like a, a real life a real life like world a world change so I mean my thoughts personally I think we need a woman president a lot of people wouldn't be you know siding with me but I just feel like a woman would add a different aspect to the world and you know how we do some things and how certain things go and you know, just as far as, uh, you know, all lives matter. It's not just a black thing, but unfortunately, we've been taking a toll for years. And, you know, I'm, it, it, it's just come to a point where, you know, people, they want to change, you know, and they're tired and they're just trying to make a stand for what they're doing. I really didn't like all, you know, the with all the destroying the shops and stuff like that in different um, states and stuff like that. Um, I just felt like we could... We can we can do what we're doing already, and you know, with the rallies, going out, just supporting each other, getting in, you know, staying safe, but you know, just supporting the cause and, and just trying to make a change. You know, we hope this tragedy can turn into something positive, and we could actually learn and move on from this. Now, normally we try to come up with some kind of clever uh, segue here, but I don't think that'd be appropriate. So we're just gonna jump right in to your playing days, Jamar, and. You had a great playing career at the prep and in common practice, your teams won a ton of conference titles and your individual game was strong enough to gain a ton of attention from D1 schools. Now, why did you choose to play your high school ball at Seton Hall Prep? I'm originally from North New Jersey, but I, I happened, yeah, I just happened to move to West Orange when I was probably, I, in my freshman year, right after eighth grade. No, actually, I'm sorry, I apologize. Sixth through eighth grade, I was living in West Orange already. So I was, you know, I was already equipped with T Hall Prep and, you know, a couple of the players that were already there, former guys, and they were doing really well. And, it, you know, it was local. It was like 10 minutes from my house. So, it just made just made sense. So at the prep, you had the opportunity to play for the great Bob Farrell, who just seemed to yeah. churn out D1 players during his coaching days. As a matter of fact, you're one of the 34 players that graduated and moved on to D1 schools. How was it playing for such a legendary coach? It's almost speechless. You know, me and Bob had a great relationship. It was, it was an honor. It was a, That was one of the big uh, reasons I went to Seahawks prep also uh, because um, Coach Farrell is just uh, the way he, the way he teaches you, the way he 
he, he talks to you. He's like a father, you know what I mean, almost. And um, there's never, it's, it's never really any issues, you know what I mean, from a coaching to a player's aspect. Uh, he's just a great, he's just a great man in, individually. And the way, he, the way he teaches things and breaks things down, you know, he, he keeps everything simple. So, Jamar, not only did you play high school ball at the prep, you also played some ball in the summertime for Jimmy Salmon's T5T Players Program. And here's, here's the question that I want to ask. I, I read somewhere that, and, and this, this pains me a little bit, that you and Marquise Webb were in the process of trying to orchestrate a Fab Five class at Rutgers University with Webb, Daryl Watkins, Terrence Roberts, and Will Sheridan. Jamar? Say it isn't true, man. You weren't seriously trying yeah. to put Rutgers back on the map, were you? Yeah, we were. We were for a second. Um, but the crazy thing was about that was I didn't really even know about, like, what was really going on until we went to, I think it was our junior year going into our senior year. We, was at, we were all at ABCD camp at Fairleigh Dickinson. And the story just came about. But it wasn't like a story that we had started. Once the once we heard about the story, that's when we started orchestrating. So me and Webb got together. Like, did you hear about this story? So I'm like, yeah, I heard about it. And then from there, we like we like really rolled with it. Like, all right, come on, with like that's a right, that's an okay idea. You know what I mean? Even though they had players, Quincy Doobie, they had a couple other players that was there at the time. So I knew it wouldn't be. Uh, fast five to go on and start probably, but it was it was it would have been something you know what I mean all of us have been playing together for the last three four years, and it, it would just, it would have just been something nice you know to bring to New Jersey you know and bring to bring bring the Rutgers, but unfortunately you know guys like not the it wasn't no big deal but you know uh, Terrence and and Daryl Watkins. They already had their mindset on on Bayheim, man, and you know it wasn't that wasn't a bad decision at all because you know who who doesn't want to play for the legendary Bayheim, and uh, but me, Daryl, I mean me, Will, and Marquise were like really into the idea. So once we knew that Terrence and Daryl was going to Syracuse, we tried to get Sean Banks involved, and um, I forgot who else it was that was on our team. We were trying to get. It's a, a, a heck of an AAU team. Yeah. I mean, all all yeah. five of those guys that you mentioned all go on to play in the Big East. Obviously, Watkins and Roberts to Syracuse, as you mentioned. Will Sheridan goes on to play at Villanova. You know, Marquise does go to don't go to Rutgers. But what I found interesting yeah. is, even though you all went to Big East schools, you ended up scoring the most career points uh, while playing in the college game. Do you guys trash talk after the fact? You know, years later, having a couple beers and being like, "I know we all went our separate ways, but but I, I put in the most points." I mean, we talk. We, we I could say about the five guys that you named, all of us that were thinking about going to Rutgers. We weren't really big trash talkers, you know. We let our games just, you know, just we let our games talk for us. But you know, we have our conversations here and there, and you know, we just we like to have fun. But I didn't even know that fact was, you know. But now I do. Thank you for letting. Me. You, you know, it's funny because it sounds like that's a great recruiting ploy. You know, the Rutgers coaches are probably sitting back there. Let's put this rumor out there and see if anybody bites on it. You know. Maybe Seton Hall mm-hmm. needs to work on that this year. It's, it still didn't work, Tom. It still didn't work. Stop it. <laughs> it was a possibility. It was strong. It was getting there. But, you know, two guys had their minds made up. Well, you didn't seem to have your mind made up right away. You had plenty of offers that were out there and big-time schools, too. Maryland, 
Temple, Pittsburgh, St. John's, Syracuse also, uh, in addition to Villanova. Who is recruiting you the hardest besides Seton Hall? I want to say uh, probably Villanova. St. John's had big interest, but I think, uh, you know, uh, it's not really that, like, uh, what kids need to know, like, going up that, you know, schools don't really lose interest in you. It's just that they have other players also. So if you don't act that, you know, in a, a reasonable time frame, you know, that they'll sign, you know, somebody else to verbally commit or somebody else to sign. So it's not really, you know, like the school will lose interest. You know what school you high, high on, you got to, you know what I mean? You got to act fast. And that's, I learned that too. Besides Villanova, St. John's, I want to say Maryland, and, and I want to say Maryland was high on me my uh, freshman, sophomore, junior year. I think uh, somebody committed before me, so uh, it kind of that kind of messed me up. Same thing with Villanova too. That was a good story too. It was crazy because we played in the big time tournament in Las Vegas our last season at AAU. What our coach Jim Salmon surprised everybody with. He surprised us with another tournament. We went from Vegas to Hawaii, so we went. We ended up playing in Hawaii. Uh, we actually ended up winning the tournament in Hawaii. I got MVP of the tournament, and every school in the country was probably there. But it was, at the time, kids were signing, you know what I mean? So all the guard spots for those big schools were really taken up. So we're leaving Hawaii, and I run into Fred Hill in the airport, at, um, Villanova's assistant coach. So I tell him at the time, yeah, I said, hey, Fred, I, I want to uh, commit. He goes... He goes, Dan, Jamar, he's like, Mike Nardi just committed probably 20, 25 minutes ago. I'm like, oh, man. So I called Louie or ASAP. I just called Lou ASAP. And I was like, Lou, I'm coming to see you. And, you know, it was. I know they wanted me really bad anyway. And, you know, I wanted to go to Villanova. And then it was that, It was just that decision. Jay Wright, Louie or it was going back and forth between coaches and Robin was at Seton Hall with the student athletic program and she's amazing. My mom was so like her and my mom were like so in tune. So it was, a, it was a decision to go back and forth, but you know, and, and, it must've been a reason that Mike Nardi committed for me to have my seat at Seton Hall. I don't know if I like where this interview is going. You were going to start the fab five at Rutgers. You, you had chosen Villanova and what was Seton Hall was like, you know, the the leftover uh, you know, thir third place finish here? Uh, come on. No, we're, we're, we're ultimately happy that you chose Seton Hall. Everything happens for a reason. But, you know, what really did end up putting Seton Hall over the top at the end? At the end, it was Lou. It was the coaching staff. It was the players that were there. I had a connection already with, with some of the guys that were there. It was uh, Robin definitely with the student athletic uh, program at the time. My mom just knew 100% that, you know, academics she didn't have to worry about. So that was really big. Like, that was one of her biggest, not worries, but, like, I want you to be somewhere where you, you like, school is going to be okay. Like, you know what I mean? So she just trusted in Robin with that. So she, like, you know, she kept putting that into my head. And I just, I mean, at the end of the day, I was like, if I don't, I, Rutgers would have only been because of the Fab Five, you know what I mean? So that wasn't, and then that story, you know, we just heard about it and ran with it. So, but my decision at the end of the day was either Villanova or Seton Hall. So it was one of the two. But once that happened with Villanova, you know, Seton Hall, I didn't have a second thought about it. I called, like, as soon as he told me that, two seconds later, I was on the phone.
Jamar, I got one more follow-up before I toss it back to Tom. You mentioned the name Robin Cunningham, and her name continually comes up in our interviews as to, you know, what a rock or what a, a benefit she brings to the program and the role that she plays. Can you take a moment and talk about what she means to Seton Hall basketball and what she meant to you? You, you kind of made a big reference to why she kind of helped that decision, not just for you, but your, but for your mother. When it comes to the Seahawks community, she's big. You know, everybody knows Robin. She's a great woman, great personality, friendly, caring, loving. You know, she's like a mom in that situation. She is a mom, but she's like, you know, when it came to us, she was like somebody we could always go to talk to about anything. She was open. Uh, never judged anybody. She was she was just amazing. And when it came to academics, like you, it was really no worries. Like she was so on top of things that that you know she shocked you. You know what I mean? She 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 just knew everything. You couldn't get over on her. That was a big part. So you know, <laughs> once you knew once 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 guys knew that, it was like that was her big thing. When she knew guys couldn't get over, you know, they we had to follow suit. You know. So, and, and once we got into that, it wasn't, everything was easy breezy, you know, you know, you, you deal with, you know, the basketball, the practice, the games, training, up in the morning, running, and you got classes, three, four classes in a day, but she made it so easy for us. She really did. And I, I would like to, I want to personally thank her on the air. If, if she's not listening, anybody listening that knows her, just tell her I said thank you because she was she she really made it happen for us. Well, I tell you, this is the first time I've had any positive thoughts about Mike Nardi ever. Good, good for him. I'm glad he went to Nova and he you came to the hall. But you know, your playing days at the hall didn't start right away. You know, you had to sit out that 2003-2004 season. You know, Jamar, what happened mm -hmm. there? How come you had to sit? It's a long story, but I'll cut the story short. Basically, took the SATs, did okay, but didn't do like you know extremely good. Then took the ACT and find it to be much more reasonable with me. And I guess I scored like a crazy amount, so I got red flagged. And by the time I got red flagged, I'm already in. I was freshman year in school, so we was practicing preseason. You know, we had a heavy preseason because we had the Alaska shootout that season. So when we travel, uh, I think, yeah, I took the test before we traveled to Alaska. And they said, once the test results, the test results should come back, they should come back by the time before our first game in Alaska. And they was like, if you pass, you're good. You keep rolling. If not, you know, we got to talk about some situations. And I think I needed to score, uh, I think, a 16. And I ended up getting a 15 on the ACT. So therefore, I had to just, you know, me, me and my mother had to sit down. I still wanted to stay in school, so it'd be, it was kind of like a red shirt. It was, it was, it was like a, it was a kind of difficult situation, but it worked out in the end. I, I was able to stay in school. Well, I'll tell you, Jamar. You know, one of the things Mike and I were talking about earlier was about, you know, some guys that seem to fly under the radar, but. You know, you always brought up positive memories for me, and I couldn't pl quite place why until we started digging in and seeing what you did at the Hall. I mean, you are sixth all-time in career three-pointer makes with 219. You're 35th on the all-time scoring, and that's a big number that kind of shocked and surprised us. 
you know, starting off your freshman year, you posted your first double-digit scoring effort with 11 against a, a Rutgers team that you guys blew out, which made us smile because better dead than red. How intense <laughs> was that Rutgers-Seton Hall rivalry during the time you were there? And did that give you any extra juice to have a strong game? You know, it's a, it's a New Jersey thing, so it's always proven who's better. You know what I mean? Two schools in the same state, you want to know. You you want to – that's how you declare who's a better school, you know, when it comes to basketball. So those games were always battles. They were always great. Um, it was just great battles. And, you know, they fought hard. We fought hard. They won some. We won some. It was always – I don't know the record between us, you know, in all time or in the time I was there. It was battles, man. But that senior night was a killer, though. And, and, you know, I can't – you know, I was mad. But, you know, it is, you know, that's basketball for you. So, But that was a killer, though. During your time there, you guys played them twice a year. And a couple weeks later from the blowout game, there was an overtime loss by one point as Quincy Doobie made a free throw with no time on the clock left. It was a hugely controversial call at the time as Doobie leaned into Donald Copeland to draw some contact. You know, personally, Mike and I are always screaming, no, that's not a foul. That's not a foul. So what did you think about that call from your vantage point? That was a Big East game, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Matt Oh uh, yes, No, I think it was okay. the, uh, it was the was? rematch rematch in the regular season. Oh, okay, okay. I thought, that, I thought that happened at the Garden. But, you know, a call like that, Quincy was all – he was so crafty, you know. And at that time, he was, you know, one of the upper echelon guys in the Big East at the time. So, you know, when you got that that name behind you and your game stands with you too, you know, you're going to get certain calls that other people don't get. And Quincy Doobie was just one of those people, but unfortunately it just happened to happen to us in a certain game like that. But, you know, but like I said, those were the wars that we that we were in with, when it came to um, the two schools. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I didn't really like to call because it was a lean versus Donald kind of just, uh, we were taught to kind of like, you know, chess up and not use our hands. So. You know, unfortunately, I, I didn't like the call, but, you know, you got you to gotta respect the whistle. Well, there's probably a lot of other things you didn't like that freshman year. The, the team clearly had some struggles. They were absolutely trying to find themselves, in my opinion. You had the Donald Copeland, uh, Justin Sarasoli point guard battle that the team was dealing with. You know, J.R. Morris eventually leaves the team. John Allen and Andre Sweet's numbers, just they kind of re regressed a little bit without having that senior leader and Andre Barrett on the team anymore. Now, so sticking with the theme of trying to find yourself, in the final game of that year at the Big East Tournament, Coach Orr gave you the start in 26 minutes against Georgetown. You responded with your best game of the year, scoring 12 points on four of eight shooting. What did that game do for your confidence heading into the next season? It was it was amazing because, you know, playing in the garden period, that's always a dream of just it should be a dream of any basketball player. So, you know, being able to play in the garden and getting a start too against a team that's always a, a team, a historic team as Georgetown, it was just it was it was amazing. And I knew I was always ready. I just I, I knew I had to respond. You know, I had uh, I put pressure on myself that game. You know, uh, wasn't a crazy game, but twelve points is you know twelve points, twelve points. It, it helps at the end of the day. Uh, it was a tight game, tough game. You know, unfortunately we didn't come out with the win. You know, like you said, we were all year trying to find ourselves, trying to find the right rotation, trying to find the right combination for guys. You know, we were winning 
winning good. We were winning good games and we were losing close ones. You know, it was a good but tough season. Just just trying to find ourselves. You know, I definitely uh, was grateful for even getting that start. I was happy for responding the way I did, helping my team, trying to fight for a win. Well, it looked like Coach Orr knew what he was doing because as you came into your sophomore year, you really blossomed. You started 25 of 29 games that year. You got your scoring average up to 12 points per game. A little bit of a slow start early on, but then you catch fire in an OT win against South Florida. You had 28 points, which is huge. Five three-pointers. You know, the team responds with a six-game winning streak, and you're scoring 17 points a game, and you're going 51% from three. What turned it around for you and the team from that point on? It was just confidence. Going into that sophomore year, we were really, like, we were really big on, like, just being on one accord and, and not being selfish. If a guy is hot, find a way to give him the ball. You know, it, it, we just we we really all believed in our in ourselves and as a team. So and we were all returning, so it was a good thing at that too. We just were we were just playing. We were just playing hard. And when your teammates got confidence in you, and you could go into a game knowing comfortably, like yo, I know everybody's gonna battle for me. Everybody, guys on the bench, guys that that's playing, starting, coming off the bench, playing. I know everybody's gonna fight for each other. So once you got that being on one accord like that, my confidence they boosted my confidence. So you know, and then the system that Louis Orr had for us, it was just a good fit as far as like you know plays off of screens, pick and rolls, different things. It just allowed me to do to get into a rhythm. And once I got into that rhythm and started adjusting, you know, every team has a different uh, defense, but you know. So the course of the season, once you start, once you start rolling like that, it's sometimes defense don't even matter. So I think when I was shooting at that, like you said, fifty-one percent from three, I was just all confidence in the team believing in me, and you know, telling me in practice times I didn't shoot shoot the ball. So and the, those, so if I missed it, I'm, if I missed those opportunities in practice, I didn't want to miss those opportunities in the game, and, and I was just taking advantage of. And, you know, it was just the confidence in the coaching staff and the team and that, that boosted my confidence to get me to, you know, get on that rhythm. Jamar, Tom mentioned the six-game winning streak. I want to go back and highlight two specific games from that stretch. The first one, I want to start with the game at uh, Syracuse. They were ranked 25th mm-hmm. in the country at the time. You know, the building's mm-hmm. packed with over 26,000 fans, and the game is tied mm-hmm. at 59 with about a buck 55 to play. And you get the ball and you hit a long three-pointer over the zone. And then Donald comes back down on the next trip, bangs in another three with 40, you know, 43 seconds later. And you guys basically ice the game. Where does that shot rank mm-hmm. for you in terms of the biggest shots in your career? Number one, number one by far. I tell everybody, uh, I, I mean, like when I do talk about stories, I bring that, I bring that up. Especially after Bayheim just made the crowd stand up. You know what I mean? And that's what really made me shoot the ball. I felt like I was coming down, like, as he, as we're coming down the court, I see him, like, you know, pumping the crowd up, waving his arms in the air, crowd, you know, 26, 27,000 people stand up. I'm like, oh, man, he got them really, like, in here standing <laughs> up. Like, it is loud in here. And, you know, like, I had just hit maybe, like, a couple threes. I probably missed the last two. But I had already in my head that if Donald comes off this screen and this ball swings across here, 
hundred percent. I'm shooting this ball. I don't. It doesn't matter where I'm at. Where I'm just gonna shoot, and that's what I did. Yeah, sit down, Jimmy. It's over here. Along with yeah, the twenty-seven thousand, sit down, right? <laughs> yeah, it was that, and just to hear like a crowd besides our, just to hear our fans cheering, and just to know that everybody he made stand up is like absolutely completely quiet right now. <laughs> and then when Don, and then when Donald came down and hit that. And then hit the three after. It was just, it was amazing. We knew like, all right, we're all right, we're on a we're on a nice little roll right now. That is one of those take the air out of the building moments, huh? Okay. <laughs> yes, definitely. All right. So the, later in that stretch of victories, the team also has a big win against Rutgers, seventy three to sixty seven at the Meadowlands. You had a team high twenty two. You also filled the stat sheet with five boards and three steals, but you were also involved in another critical play. And here's once again, our uh, Rutgers and Quincy Doobie claiming that there was a foul call, 40 seconds to play. Doobie goes up for a shot. The ref, you know, calls it as a, as a no call. But Doobie's quoted after the game saying, I got hit on the arm. The ref's always right. So you just got to keep on playing. You know, they aren't going to make that call in that situation. So, so they just kind of let it ride. The defender on that play is none other than yourself. So Jamar, be mm-hmm. honest with me now. Did you foul Doobie? I don't think it was enough. I don't. I, I'm gonna say I didn't. I, I'm gonna say I didn't. <laughs> I'm gonna say I didn't foul because I don't believe I hit him. Like I didn't touch him hard enough to like completely. You know what I mean? Mess up his shot, mess up his form, or anything. You know what I mean? So just a little tap just might you know make you want to arch it higher than you're supposed to. I don't call that a foul. <laughs> I, we didn't think it was a foul, so I don't know what he's complaining about. They owed us from the call at the rack the year before. That's why we kind of brought up the previous story. Because we, we knew we were going to go here. We're like, you know what? You got the call the first time. You ain't getting that call twice. You know what I mean? Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Now, I think it's safe to say you guys overachieved that year, or at least achieved more than was expected. You know, selection show Sunday comes on, and Seton Hall is clearly on the bubble that year. And you had a comment, and you said that we've been underdogs most of the season. We had books ranking us 15th in the Big East, saying that we had the worst backcourt in the nation. And look what we did. If they select us, I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to the tournament and we're going to be ready to play. Due to the level of disrespect the team got in the preseason, how gratifying was it to make that accomplishment and get into the tournament? It was it was just a great moment. Like the celebration in the room for Selection Sunday was it was amazing. It was like everybody was happy, you know, everybody was jumping around. Some people were on the table. It was it was just an amazing feeling. And it, that was our motivation all year because they had us like not really doing anything like in the Big East preseason, uh, not even nowhere near making a tournament or the NIT. So, you know, that, that was our big motivation. And that, that drove us all year to just step up, especially those, especially when we play uh, top 25 teams that, that season, you know, we, we came out ready to play. And, you know, that underdog motivation, it just pushed us. It drove us all season, all season. So Jamar, we're we're gonna just pretend that the Wichita State game just didn't happen, and we're gonna we're gonna fast forward to the start of your junior season. You're once again right in the middle of things, averaging 12 points a game, 23 out of 29 starts. But you now have to deal with a new coach in Bobby Gonzalez, and it seemed like he was changing his starting lineup every game. 
only Brian Lang and Eugene Harvey started all 29 games that season. How hard was it adjusting from Lewis Orr to Bobby Gonzalez? It was, it was an adjustment because uh, at the time, playing with Louis, knowing the system, I was ready to come back to that system, and I knew, like, that was going to be my real, like, year. I knew I was going to make – like, I've been making noise. I was having a great summer just as far as working out, playing in certain – playing in games around New Jersey and New York and stuff like that. And it was – it was I was I was expecting – you know, I was really expecting to come back that year to Louis' system, but unfortunately, you know, when Bobby came in, Bobby was an up and down, up and down guy, which I really didn't have a problem with. And you know, I really do, even though the season we had and the things we went through, he really, well, for me personally, I don't know about the other guys, but me personally, I can thank him for like installing the mental toughness in me, the ability to know that you can get your body through anything, like through the. When when you thought you were gonna like pass out or whatever your body like you you took it to a next level, and I can thank him for that because that that's like uh that was like a real that was a real push because our preseason workouts I'd never been through nothing like that before ever, and just to get through it it was you know what I mean you got all of us we had to honor ourselves and just get this was that was a brutal preseason but it was a, it was an adjustment because you know Lou was uh Lou's system more like a pacing like you know what I mean you could pace yourself through the offense and stuff like that and then now coming to Bobby and having to press up and down and also run up and down on offense so it was a real it was a wake up definitely a wake up Tom and I like to dive into the numbers from time to time and here's one stat that kind of jumped out to me it seemed like you had some inconsistency in your game that year. You had nine games in single-digit scoring where you were at that point pretty consistently putting up double figures uh, in your career. You were shooting almost 40% historically in your career from the three-point line, but that year it dropped down to 31%, the lowest of all four-year seasons. What do you attribute some of those struggles to? Could have been, like I said, brutal preseason and probably having pressed the way we pressed that year, it probably was in AAU probably like with the players, like we probably pressed, that was probably last time I really like pressed like that. So that up and down, like, you know, the legs, I mean, I could probably say the legs probably weren't there all, all game all the time, you know, running up and down and that could have contributed to the numbers going down. But also just, you know, trying to find yourself in, the off, in, a, in a new offense again. We also noticed that your amount of shots went up. So it looks like you, as a junior, you're taking on a lot more responsibility on the team. Did you feel like the other opponent's defense was locked in more of, on you as a go-to player at that point in your career as well? Yeah, I definitely can say that. I know personally, like, uh, with seeing Hall scouting reports, when we scout other players that, you know, are on teams that are doing really well, how we scout them. So I can just imagine how... At that time, like me, Brian Lang, me, Brian Lang, I think Paul Goss, me, Brian Lang, and Paul Goss are probably the only guys returning, I think, at yeah, that time. That, as far yeah, as that, like, that team, that yeah, team brought on Eugene Harvey and Larry Davis. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was um, a very young team. Yeah, I know the scout reports probably for all three of us were probably locked in because we just, you know, we came, we all just, we're all returning. But for me personally, I know I probably had a, a nice scout report on me. So that that also could have, you know, the key is, you know, help defense in college basketball, especially in the Big East was, you know, so when you get that lock, like you get that lock in on you and teams key in on you, it could be a little tough at times. You just, all right, and that, I found that to be 
like you uh, like you said, I found that to be a little bit difficult at times. But I had to I had to try to find a, another rhythm now, you know, especially with the offense. And then at at times, you know, Brian Lee Brian Lang always had a mismatch because he was uh, playing a four, so he always had a smaller guy or a bigger guy. So we were kind of keyed in on him, kind of like to get us rolling or, you know, to be the, the leading scorer at the time, too, because he always had a mismatch. So it was just about trying to find my way during that season. I, unfortunately, I don't like single-digit games. I was trying my best to... Well, transition years are always tough, and, and this one was uh, no exception here. The team goes 4-12 and in Big East play, and one of the only bright spots came on January 17th, early in the Big East season. Mm-hmm. You're having one of those nights you probably want to forget. You're basically 0-7 from the floor and specifically 0-5 from 3. But Coach Gonzalez sticks with you, and you respond by hitting three three-pointers in the final three minutes for your only baskets, but... You lead the team past Providence 69-68. As a side note, Jeff McDermott of the Friars misses a game-winning layup at the buzzer. We always hear that the phrase, shooters keep shooting. We've heard that a bunch of times from folks that we've interviewed. But when you're over the game at that moment, do you really have the confidence in your head that the next one's going in? Yeah, I don't have a I don't have a thought. I don't have a thought about it. I don't all the all the basketball I played in my life, I it's never at that stage, at that time in college, it was never a thought. Like, you know, I never doubted myself or I never because I had other games where I went like games like that in the Meadowlands, four for twelve. I don't I mean, I never thought to myself, Am I over? I'm gonna shoot the ball. because it's either your night or it's not your night, but I'm not gonna stop shooting. Senior season comes along, and it seems like you've gotten used to Bobby Gonzalez's uh, system. Your legs seem to be under you because your numbers come back to what they normally were. You're almost shooting 40% from three, and you seem to be back on your normal path. And that season marks a big season at Seton Hall because we move from the cavernous Meadowlands over to the Rock. Now, Bobby G always said that playing at the Meadowlands was similar to playing like at a neutral court. Could you describe what kind of feeling you got playing in both of those buildings and which one you preferred? To answer the question, which one I preferred, both great buildings, but I preferred the Meadowlands. Uh, it was just something about the Meadowlands, walking in there. It was just, you know, it's just any, when you know you play in an NBA arena, that, that motivation right there is like, I we know all our home games are in the NBA arena. Yeah, it just it was a great it was a great feeling. But the Rock though, the Rock was special too. Just to you know be one of the first teams to you know when the building opened up to be able to play in the building. So that was special too. But uh, if I had to decide which building, I'm gonna go with the Meadowlands. Well, that that's interesting. You know, I I used to go to a ton of Nets games when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, you know, because people were giving away those tickets. And I've seen more people in the crowd at, at Walsh than I did at the Meadowlands at times. So calling it an NBA arena is really pushing it there a little bit, Jamar. Well, that, that's why I'm kind of surprised by your his, his answer. Because Jamar, I mean, we were getting like 5,000 on a good night in the Meadowlands. And when the, when the organization transitions over to the Rock, people were excited. Season ticket sales went up. You know, people were filling the building. We were getting eight to 10,000 in the lower bowl, maybe not on a consistent night, but having just that lower bowl filled, it felt like there was more people in the building. You didn't feel like a different vibe or energy in the rock versus the Meadowlands? 
No, definitely the rock because of the the way it was structured. The rock was definitely how can I say it? It was uh well you could hear you could hear the crowd more. The crowd felt like they were more on top at the Meadowlands. It, it felt spacey, but that that feeling of being on the court was it was a different feeling for me personally being on the Meadowlands court than, and then being on the rock court. And I just I don't know every time I walked into the Meadowlands, I just always looked up and I'm just like I was just always amazed and I was just always. It just always got me pumped for some reason. But playing at the Rock, though, that the fans and the, that the six-man at the Rock was just way more different than the six-man at the Meadowlands because of the you know how the building was structured. All right, fair enough. You know, in your senior season, Bobby G is slowly starting to build the program, and he's bringing in guys that he likes to build out that roster. In your four years at Seton Hall with the backcourts constructed by Louie, you know, they were kind of different from the ones that Gonzalez was bringing in. So we're going to put you on the spot with you included in the evaluation. Which was the better three guard roster here? Was it DC, Brian Lang and yourself, or is it Eugene Harvey, Jeremy Hazell and yourself? Oh, man. You didn't think it was going to be easy, did you, Jamar? Nah, <laughs> it definitely ain't make it easy. Wow, Donald Copeland, man, Donald Copeland, D-Lane, my guys, guys, Eugene Harvey and Jeremy and my guys too. Man, oh, whoo, Tom, he did one right there, Tom. Um, yeah, if I had to take one, though, I'm going to go with D.C. and D-Lane. What makes that choice there? Was it was it a flow that you had better with those guys? I mean, what what do you what are your thoughts there? I can say the flow because we all were comfortable at that time. We were all at a at a time where we all bored in. We all had been around each other for a year or two, and the way the season was going, and the way I I watched um, not to knock Eugene and Jeremy, but the way I watched B Lane prosper, and the way I watched Donald go from his situation. To how he ended his situation, it was just, and and the way the the way both of them fought, you know what I mean, to even to get to put themselves in the situation that they they ended up in, it was it was some it was something good to see. see. We were not being fair to Jamar because Brian Lang is technically on that last roster with you, oh. Eugene Harvey, and Jeremy Hazel. But as you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Brian's playing at a position at the four predominantly his entire season season. So I don't even put him in that backcourt group. He's second in the big East in scoring that season over 18, a game playing the four at six, five. So we were kind of teasing it because you, along with those other four guys fall into kind of a time with Seton hall where you guys have high level big East backcourt players, but I think you guys fall under the radar because the team just didn't have the tournament success where they weren't winning big East championships because there was, you know, 16 teams in the conference. So we just kind of wanted to hear you talk about those four guys, their impact on the program. Cause I think along with yourself, we just don't hear their name enough. Don't you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, like I said, Donald, um, you know, Donald not really struggled on early, but you know, he had to take a, a, a little role, a little back role just to, you know, until his time came. And when his time came, the one thing I could say about Don, Donald's always been a fighter from high school playing with St. Anthony's and AU. He's always been always been a fighter. Not, like that's one thing you can expect from him. Like you never Donald, you never had to doubt him how he was gonna come into the game playing. 
you knew like all right, this our point guard, yeah, he's leading. We're good. So that was always a great thing about Donald. Donald's leadership was always his heart. It was it was just big. It was just, oh, it was just big. He he felt and he felt like that. Like my heart is bigger than everybody. When when it came to like when it came to grind time, when it came to no matter if he's five ten and, and the guard guarding him is six three, six four, six five, he still feels I'm the better person and that's how he played. So I love the way that he took his situation because some guys might have not made it through that situation and ended up playing as well as he did to end his career. Some other guys might have, that back row might have tanked them. So that's what I loved about Donald, just the way he fought and, you know what I mean, and the way he ended his career. B-Lang, same type of thing. You know, he wasn't really playing early on. When he ended his career, like you said, 19 points, second leading in the Big East and stuff like that, that's a big accomplishment. So I know he, you know what I mean, I always used to pat him on his back, always tell him good job, always just tell him I'm proud of him, you know what I mean, for what he's doing and just, you know what I mean, I always had him. I loved what he was doing to evolve himself. So I always stayed on I always stayed on him to make sure he, he never went back because, you know, Early on, he had the little problems with, you know, not playing, thinking he should play and stuff like that. And it's, it's tough. And we talked back then. And then when we talked now, when he's in the second the second leading scorer in the Big East, you know what I mean? Now we're looking back like, listen, you can't go back that way. You can't think about none of that. You got to stay where you're at right now. You're on a roll right now. And I, I love the way he just evolved himself as a man and as a basketball player, you know what I mean? And when Bobby gave him that chance to evolve, he took it and he ran with it. And that was a great thing. He really he helped us that year, though, even though, we, you know, the games at Wichita, that record could have been worse than what it was. But Brian Lane came through for us. I honestly think uh, that record well, could have been better than it was, if you're asking me. In the What's ironic is the 07-08 team ends up having the same record as the 08 and 09 team. And Tom and I were talking to Paul Gauze about, hey, maybe if a couple games – you know, went a different direction in that 08-09 season. Maybe you guys make the NCAA tournament. We started breaking down that senior season, that 07-08 year. Team was 17-15, and 7-11 in the Big East, 11th place. And with, with the stack talent in the Big East, that was more than respectable at the time. But I went down some of the losses on the schedule that year, and they were kind of really bringing back some memories. So I, I, gotta, I want to ask you, do you feel like that team – you know, had a, had a couple games that they missed out on the opportunity. But before I do that, I want to kind of go down memory lane and jog your memory for a second. So bear with me on these four games. There was a game early okay. in the season at Penn State. The team loses in overtime, 89 to 86. You had a 15-point lead at one point, and a freshman for Penn State, Taylor Battle, hits a three-pointer with a minute to play to tie it, and then he scores nine points in OT. Later that season, you're at Nova. You lose 72 to 70 probably could have broken that dubious streak during this very game before it got to the, the, the 20 plus years that we had to deal with Dwayne Anderson, Dwayne Anderson hits a three pointer with 13 seconds to play. Dwayne's like a, a sub 30% three point shooter that year. And we lose by two at St. John's 65, 62. You hit a three to tie it with 10 seconds to play. And then Anthony Mason jr. Comes back down and it's a three with 1.3 to go. They win that game. And then to kind of climax it all, you're home against Rutgers. Team had a 13-point lead at half. It kind of wilts away, and J.R. Inman hits that crazy running three-pointer uh, to beat the buzzer in the corner. That's four games, Jamar. 
if hypothetically those four games swing, team is now 21 and 11. They are then now 10 and eight in the Big East. That's an NCAA tournament team. That definitely is. Any regrets that those games didn't kind of swing your way? I mean, no regrets. It's just, you know, like we all say, I mean, it's basketball. And, you know, the ball goes one way or the other every night. Every time you step on the court, we never know what the ending's going to be. And, you know, certain games we had to lead, we we blew it, basically, because then it'd be up 13, they even be up seven, eight, you know what I mean? And we worked on things like that at, like, second half, eight minutes to go, and, like, playing, like, those situations type of games and, and practice. So we did work on it. So I don't know what it was. Maybe, I mean, we just mentally, some games we just weren't there. Some games, I, I don't know, when when we lose leads like that, I we probably, most of the time I feel like you lose a lead like that, the other team comes out with a different, a different game plan, different intensity, and and we probably didn't match that intensity, which made us lose that lead, those leads. And then, uh, unfortunately, you know, those threes, you can't just, you got to deal with them. Last second threes, and, you know, Dwayne Anderson, like you said, you know, sometimes it's guys' moments, and, you know, they, they take the opportunity, and they make them. We had Paul Gauze out a few weeks back, and Paul said that, you know what, you guys really tried to lock down defensively. You were a lockdown defender yourself, but you said you just didn't have the size. Going back to Brian Lang playing the four at 6'5", if that team had one or two more guys in the front court, like that team got Herb Pope a couple of years later to really solidify the rebounding and the size on that team. If you guys had one more oh. player to solidify that oh. front court, how, how good would that team have been? Oh, forget about it. If we would have had a herd Pope in that in that situation, even if we would have had like we had John Garcia, but if John Garcia was a hundred percent, we would have been okay. John just could never get his knee straight. He always had that. He always he had that. Just, he just, yeah, yeah, yeah he could just, and I'm I'm sad for him because when he first came in, he was a dog. I mean, he was a dog under that basket, and unfortunately, he had the the couple of knee problems. But he can never get over that knee situation, and that that kind of you know made his career what it was. But yeah, I was kind of sad for that. I always used to talk about uh, me and me and John. Uh, we spoke maybe like uh, I've seen him like maybe a year or two ago. John's always been a good guy, but I was just sad for that situation because I knew what he was when he played in high school, and then when he came to City Hall when he first came before his knee injuries, he was a dog. So if we would have had a Pope, uh, a Herb in that situation, or if we would have had John at 100%, that team would have still been uh, would still been better. Jamar, <laughs> you graduate and you pack your bags, and you had a real respectable career out uh, around the world playing basketball. It seems like they stamped your passport quite a bit. You played in Denmark. You played in Germany, Morocco. I believe you played in South America for a little bit. We love to ask yeah. our former Pirates, what was their favorite stop and why? Favorite stop, Germany. Uh, at the time, uh, at the time, it was great because one time I got to play with J.R. Morris again, and then another time I got to play with Paul Goss. So, and just the level of basketball in Germany at the time, it was just fun. It was just, I just enjoyed, that was the one place where I enjoyed, and I enjoyed everywhere, but I really enjoyed myself on the court and off the court in Germany. 
where when you were done going around the world, you actually played one more season for the American Basketball League, and then you basically you hung up your sneakers. How hard is it to walk away when you're an athlete and you've played so long? It's tough. It's tough because, you know, you put to Well, me personally, I probably started playing basketball when I was like, probably like six or seven. So uh, to go all those years, just to grind, the, the getting up in the morning, the running, just to stay in shape, and uh, just to go at that, just to go at it to perfect my craft. Uh, it was tough. It was tough, but I knew like that last season, not the last season in the NBA, uh, in the in the little pro in the pro uh, semi pro league, my last season in Uruguay in 2014, I believe it was. I was doing everything like they had they had they had rehab for me they had all oh, you know the ice the stem stem machines everything it was just something about my knees at the time that was just like because at that time I had played in South America two years back to back and those games over there are like two to three games a week most of the time definitely two but sometimes you would get a third game in there and in South America, if you're not in foul trouble, you're playing 40 minutes. They're not thinking about <laughs> at all, at, at, at all, not one bit. So I guess, dude, you know, and those guys play hard. Those South American guys, they play hard. The Americans that come over there, they play hard. So, you know, just the, the, the bumping, the bruises and stuff like that, I guess the wear and tear from all the years of playing basketball, high school, college, and then now overseas. I just was doing, like, I feel myself doing certain moves, and I feel like, I would feel like I'm not as fast as I was, like, I normally would be. And it just came a point where I just said to myself, like, well, I wanted to, my original plan was to take a year off and then try to go back. But once, it's hard, though, if you don't have, I never had a legit agent when I was overseas. I was kind of getting jobs, like, guys, agents would just hit me and be like, hey, I heard about you. I watched you such and such, you know, I got a team that's interested. Would you be interested? I was getting jobs like that. Or I was getting the one time I Paul Paul actually put me on. A guy got released and he called me right away. So that was a blessing. But it was hard, but I, at the end of the day I knew like, you know what I mean, my body's not the same and I just had to do it. But you know, I still, you know, play for the fun but not professionally. Well, you came back to the States and you were honored by the prep to be inducted to their Athletic Hall of Fame in 2015. With all the storied players who came through that program, what did this accomplishment mean to you? It's a blessing. It's always a blessing. It should be a blessing for anybody when you reach somebody's Hall of Fame, especially when you go to a uh, you're at a prestige high school where you know some of the most talented people in that state came to the high school and played, you know what I mean? So throughout the course of seeing Hall Prep through all the years, I'm just honored. I was I was honored. Well, more recently, you've been exploring business and entrepreneurial ventures with your company called Van and Stuyvesant Company. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it actually started off a friend of mine, a good friend of mine from high school, started a consulting company where he just, you know, he consults in uh, different ventures as far as like uh, companies are trying to uh, build themselves. He has the ability and the networking to put them in place with certain people to, you know, that might take on their company as far as investors or just, just build them, just level their business up. Uh, 
Um, and once uh, once he started that from his uh, well, actually he started with a sneaker company, and then he transferred to that to getting. He was actually blessed to happen to put the whole consulting company together. He asked me one day. He was like, he asked me. He's like, I know there's a lot of guys out here that know people, but he was like, when I when I think of somebody, he was like, the first thing I thought was to call you and ask you. So uh, we just sat down and talked, and then it led him into like, yo, we should do something in music. So uh, I was like, I was like, nah, that's cool. That would be a good idea. He was like, I would actually like like to start that up. He was like, I know some guys. I know you probably know some people. So we just recently started the like the music the music thing. Probably like it was a little bit before the pandemic. So I'm gonna probably say maybe in like January this happened. And we just we just been trying to sit down, you know, discover new artists, unsigned artists that are out there and just trying to just we're just consulting and then we're not signing anybody. We're just trying to help people that, you know, have that wanna get to a certain place in their career as far as on the music side. And between the network I have and the network that he has, we're just trying to just, you know, help unsigned artists get to a level where they think their their talent their talent belongs. Okay, Jamar, so before we let our guests go, we ask him to walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid-fire questions. We're looking for five rapid-fire answers back. Do you think you're ready? Yeah. All right, here we, here we go. Most points scored in any game, any level. 35. Which team was your biggest arch rival? Rockers. Toughest road environment? West Virginia. Toughest opposing player you've ever played. Rudy Gay. Best Seton Hall player you've seen play. Kelly Whitten. In a game of 21 with former Seton Hall prep stars, Marcus Toniel, Sterling Gibbs, and yourself, who's coming out on top? I'm winning. <laughs> there we go. Congratulations, Jamar. You have walked the plank. So, so Jamar, we had Shaheen Holloway on, and Shaheen said West Virginia as well. What, 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 tell me about that environment. Why West Virginia? Man, I don't, man, I don't know if it's the structure of the arena or if it's just that many people in there, but it's just, oh, the court shaky, then that little musket before the game that goes off that nobody expects <laughs> that gets you, that gets you every time. You don't know what is going off, though, and it just goes off and you, it, it shake, and that's like right before tip off, and you're like, oh. <laughs> It's just, I mean, their crowd is amazing, though. Their crowd is definitely amazing. It's just a, I don't know, it's just, and, and, you know, West Virginia, behind their crowd, they're like, they just play, they're always a play-hard team, but behind their crowd, they just play even harder. So it's always been a tough, just, uh, for me, I felt like it's a, it's been a great place to play, but it's probably the toughest atmosphere to play. I, I would freak out a little bit if someone was shooting off a gun before a basketball game as well, man. I'll tell you what. Yeah. Well, for real, for real. well, Jamar, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today and talking about your, your career and whatnot. We wish you nothing but the best with all your future ventures. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys, too. I wish you guys nothing but the best also. Stay safe out here. You know, you guys keep doing your thing. You guys got a good thing going. Jamar Nutter, everybody. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, 
I am Mike Dizzy Dizzy, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Thank <laughs> you.